Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. Just as a reminder for all of our episodes, while we love interviewing people who fall far from the norm and interrogating radical ideas, we do not necessarily endorse the views of our guests on this show. In this episode, we interview Abeba Burhani, a PhD candidate in cognitive science at University College Dublin in the School of Computer Science. Abeba studies the relationships between emerging technologies, personhood, and society. Specifically, she explores how technology can shape what it means to be human. Abeba's work is interdisciplinary, bridging the fields of cognitive science, psychology, computer science, critical data studies, philosophy, and more. Several questions that we explore in this interview. Should we grant robots rights? What is moral relationality, and how can it be useful for designing machine learning algorithms? And finally, what is the algorithmic colonization of Africa, and why is it harmful? Without further ado, we are so excited to share this interview with Abeba Burhani with all of you. We're here with Abeba Burhani. Abeba, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. As we get started, we were wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about yourself, about who you are as a person, maybe as a researcher. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, my, yeah, I'll start with my academic background. I guess that's the easiest. Um, uh, I am uh, from uh, Ethiopia originally, and I... Uh, first studied physics and then um, I was uh, doing really, I was failing in calculus. So I moved to uh, study physics with languages. That was my first degree in uh, Ethiopia. And um, I moved then to Ireland and totally switched to, you know, a completely new area. And I studied uh, psychology uh, and then philosophy. and then I uh, went and did a master's in cognitive science. Um, my mom is always complaining whenever I am on the phone. When will you stop studying? You are like studying forever. <laughs> uh, so yes, and uh, after my master's in CogSci, I kind of took a year out. I worked for an advertising agency. I didn't like it very much, but I was advised to uh, to kind of... Um, experience the real world as they say and and then came back to to do uh, my phd i'm on my third year now and uh, i'm really interested in how you started in in cognitive science i'm also interested in your answer to that question about uh whether you'll ever stop studying yeah yeah i i totally um i i guess i have a, a love and hate relationship with um academia I, I love reading, I love studying, I love discussing research with my peers. Uh, but I'm also constantly frustrated as a black woman because there are so many barriers, your work is way more scrutinized, you are made uh, feel like an imposter constantly. Um, your students are, you know, every every semester you walk into your class and your students are surprised you are there to teach them. 
Uh, I guess uh, people are not um, used to young black women in teaching in classrooms. Um, yeah, but but also generally, you know, the 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 kind of ingrained structure that takes the the Western white man as the status quo, as the quintessential representative of academia, um, you know, directly or indirectly, is constantly frustrating because. Uh, you know, you are being excluded, being questioned, and uh, you face various challenges. Uh, but d- despite that, it's I, I guess that's an ongoing tension. Um, I, I still love reading research, and um, I hate that aspect, but it's a push and pull, and uh, it's hopefully I will find the the good, the perfect balance, which itself is a moving target. Um, yeah, and I, I, um, yeah, I, I started, uh, I, I got into Kogsai, uh, because, um, I guess this was a few years back now, uh, I really liked the interdisciplinary aspect of it, especially in Dublin, in Ireland, where I studied my master's, where also where I'm doing my PhD, the cognitive science program is super interdisciplinary, uh, you, do modules from neuroscience, uh, from computer science, uh, from philosophy, uh, from, you know, um, anthropology. So it really kind of gives you a great insight into various fields. And I, I really liked that aspect of that. The master's program in uh, Dublin, Ireland is very interdisciplinary. There were a few modules in computer science uh, where you did uh, various sorts of modeling, cognitive modeling. Uh, but apart from that, it really is a collection of not just a collection. You you also have to integrate them all in in into creating something coherent. Uh, but I got into through through the master's program. I come to this um, kind of uh, narrow field in cognitive science known as embodied and inactive cognitive science. Uh, you are probably familiar with it. It's kind of um, a pushback against traditional uh, thinking, traditional cognitive science, uh, which in a nutshell takes cognition as something, you know, separate or separable, uh, something uh, you can, something individualistic, you can look at the brain or you can take the individual out of the ecology and put them in a lab and study their learning or their intelligence or their cognition. And it's a pushback against all that. It's like, no, you, the person you is inherently and uh, naturally interlinked with a web of relations with other person, but also with the physical environment as well. So if you want to understand a person's learning process or intelligence or cognition, you really have to take account of the whole milieu. You have to study people as as active beings as they interact. So that's the core of these uh, embodied in inactive traditions. So I was very interested in that and I came to kind of, so when I initially proposed to do a PhD, my my initial research question was, uh, yes, the person is inherently interlinked with others. You cannot exist without others. And uh, also the environment is crucial. Uh, But within that paradigm, the embodied and inactive 
uh, traditions don't focus so much on the on the digital uh, aspect of the environment. So I came in to look in depth at how the digital sphere contributes to what it means to be a person, to what cognition is. Uh, so as I went further and further into into my studies, what uh, I discovered and what was uh, really gripping my interest was the fact that, yes, everybody's impacted by the digital technology, whether it's something you voluntarily uh, use, upload, uh, or interact with, or whether it is, you know, technologies that are out there installed and that you, inter you, that you come in to interact with involuntarily where you have no choice. Yes, everybody's impacted by that. And to some extent, it does affect how you react, how you behave, and how you become. But what's missing, what is not explored is the fact that not everybody's impacted equally. The, the higher uh, you, your position is in the societal hierarchy, the more agency you seem to have uh, to, to choose uh, what can influence you, what you can avoid, uh, that sort of stuff. So that then ethics become <laughs> incredibly unavoidable. You you cannot study these uh, uh, aspects of, of cognition and what it means to be a person and, and not look at uh, ethics. So now, at, you know, near the end of my third year, I see myself more at the ethics side of COGSI rather than at the cognition um, part of uh, COGSI, where I, where I started out. A part of... Uh, my research right now is even just trying to get a handle on the word ethics and what it means in some of these spaces. And I'm wondering for you, what either how do you define ethics or like what do you think is the goal of like these ethical conversations in technology spaces? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I used to, so I uh, on my Twitter bio I used to have I still have um, hashtags like. Uh, complexity, uh, embodiment, uh, dialogism, and ethics. And I recently took ethics out because it has become uh, kind of vacuous and it, because it means so many things, so many different things to so many people. So uh, I, I find myself kind of avoiding that word. And uh, even though I, I generally... I mean, in the scale of where my study is, in the you know, in 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 the landscape of Kogsai, I do see myself more at the ethics side. Uh, but to pinpoint what exactly ethics means uh, has become really problematic. Uh, I think the main reason to that comes down to, at least for me, to to you know, various um, ethics boards within various. Uh, big tech companies where ethics has become just a, a PR stunt uh, or you have this very narrow field of AI ethics where people are intensely working on finding a, a good formulation or the perfect formula to debias your data set or to uh, find a way to to avoid discrimination, that sort of stuff. So it, it has become, in that sense, it has become so narrow. It's uh, for me that that yes, it's part of the the solution, but it's it may it misses the the bigger point and uh, kind of associating ethics to that narrow idea or to you know the general uh, PR stance 
being used by big companies. Uh, that's probably some of the reasons why I have come to <laughs> stay, try to stay away from the from that word. Yeah. And part of, uh, for me, what makes your research so influential is that you're bridging some of these disciplinary gaps. So like you're bringing in the cognitive science, uh, you're bringing in the computer science, and then you're also bringing in the philosophy. And as someone studying moral philosophy, I'm curious about uh, your take on, you know, what the role of philosophy is here. I know you've especially done some work with like Descartes um, and pushing back against some like Cartesian ideas. And we don't have to go too far down that rabbit hole. Um, but I am curious, just like in general, where you see the role of philosophy in some of these conversations. Yes, I do have some philosophy background. I do have a little bit of computer science background. I do have a cognitive science background. I do have a psychology background. But funny, I don't find myself as being, uh, you know, a, a philosopher or a psychologist or a cognitive scientist, because uh, I really am at the intersection of all these. And, um, and uh, yes, I, uh, and, and generally speaking, my work is more philosophical than anything, but I would still find it difficult to fit in uh, to to take the the label a philosopher because I what my the kind of philosophy I do is not really doesn't fit well with your traditional Western analytic type of philosophy. Um, it's it it works in in many respects, but for me it, it kind of it gets too abstract. It's um it's too high up on a kind of constantly trying to generalize or trying to find some generalizable rules, it really misses the particulars, the ground. That's where I find the philosophical thinking uh, kind of inspired by, you know, uh, system science, uh, embodied cognitive science and inaction, much more, much more usable, much more practical. You are not philosophizing or you are not trying to create some logical coherence to your thinking but you really are talking about a particular incident a particular event and in a, in a particular context context is always there so uh, in that sense for me that type of philosophy is really important and, and uh, it has a role in uh, in ethics this is uh, I know you have a question for me on my robot rights uh, paper. So this is the kind of thing we also mentioned in, in the paper uh, a little bit. Uh, because when you look at, you know, the general field of uh, AI ethics that is so heavily involved with robot rights, it really is up, up there way too abstract. It's about what is intelligence, you know, uh, do thermostats have intentions? That sort of, to me, almost sounds a bit insane. Uh, and you, you, yeah, it's good to 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 theorize. It's good to find uh, clear uh, logical coherence in your thinking. It's good to be rigorous. But when you are way far removed from actual happenings, you are actually doing more harm than good. This is how you end up arguing whether robots should have robots should have rights or not when you actually have issues such as the very robots that we are discussing about are made by, they, they, they operate on the backbone of micro workers, uh, you know, people constantly tagging and labeling images, 
Um, and also the whole conversation moves the, the discussion from what's happening on the ground. You have, for example, um, I think this was last year, a, a case where a wheelchair user was blocked uh, by a Starship robot and she couldn't get out of her way. And it should be those uh, incidents, those uh, you know, actual events that we need to talk about instead of whether a robot should have a right or not. So I, I guess this is another example of uh, how philosophy is important, but too analytic, too far removed uh, uh, philosophical thinking that strives to find a unifying theory or some generalizable principles, really, I don't see it helping in, in AI ethics, I think. Well, I was just about to ask you, should robots have rights? But now I feel like I shouldn't ask that question. <laughs> so maybe instead, of, a better question would be to ask, uh, if we were to grant some sort of rights to robots, like pragmatically speaking, what would that look like? And what are some of the possible uh, negative and positive outcomes of choosing certain scenarios over others? Uh, to me, granting robots is just extending rights to... Uh, companies, big tech companies, monopolies uh, that already have rights. So by giving rights to their products, you are extending their rights to to do as to to even further abrog ab ab abrogate their uh, responsibilities. Uh, so it because on a philosophical level, there is no autonomous entity. Not at the moment. There might be in the future. There is no autonomous entity that can be granted rights. If you look at, you know, the very basic, the very components of how robots operate, uh, even how machine learning systems work, because there is no actual uh, clear definition that demarcates machine learning systems from robots. Uh, if if you look at how those things operate, they are never. Uh, just autonomous systems, they are always human machine systems. So when we are talking about the philo at, a, at a philosophical level, how intelligent a, ma a machine has to be in order to be granted, righted, granted rights, we really are removing the whole backbone, the human in the loop. That is, that is maintaining, that is creating, that is making, making the, the operation smooth. So, uh, for me, as long as there is that, there is no, uh, it's, it's silly to talk about even the very idea of granting robots rights. Uh, but rather, it's, it's much more important. If we think we are being ethical, if we think we are uh, involved in ethics, then look at what is behind the scene. How much are, you know, for example, Amazon's Mechanical Turks, they are one of the lowest paid uh, workers and they, uh, they they are heavily involved in you know when from tagging raw data uh, to maintaining uh, various you know whether it's machine learning systems or robotic systems. So how let's talk about you know how how are we maintaining their welfare? How are we pr protecting um, their health? And what systems do we have in place for them to have a, a you know a right their rights a comfortable life? So that's much more important. Uh, yeah, but also that is on a philosophical level. But when you then look at it from another level, what you find is uh, in what what you find is robots and machine learning systems are actually tools 
that are being used to harm people, uh, whether it's hiring systems, whether it's policing systems, or whether it's machine learning systems used in various spheres, what you find is the very development and deployment of those systems actually puts vulnerable people, poor people, marginalized people at, um, at a much higher disproportional uh, harm compared to, you know, you know, the status quo. So it's, that's really the harm that's being caused by robots and machine learning systems is what we really need to talk about if we really are concerned about ethics. That's my position anyway. <laughs> One thing that we've heard from some other guests who are questioning the status quo is that they've received some uh, pushback um, from industry or from other folks, even in the field. Uh, and I'm curious if you, um, especially around this topic of, of robot rights or centering marginalized voices, have uh, received any pushback to your scholarship. I haven't received any pushbacks from any notable industry or organizations Uh <laughs> I am not that big, <laughs> uh, but when our paper came out, uh, there was pushbacks, but from individual researchers who were really invested in uh, robot rights. Uh, and I do sometimes wonder whether they actually really, you know, those people who, who work to make robot rights a thing, whether they are missing the point of what they are advocating for or whether they know and they are still, you know, going ahead and, and uh, working towards it. Uh, because uh, for me, it just, it, it doesn't make sense to, to, to call yourself an ethicist uh, if, if you kind of underplay or downplay uh, the harms that's, the harm that's, that's being caused by, uh, you know, the, the deployment of uh, these systems. Uh, so there was some uh, pushback, especially on Twitter and, um, it was a little frustrating, but also it it may it gave our paper a lot of coverage. Uh, so uh, not bad overall. <laughs> do you see a relationship, or uh, maybe a better word for that would be, do you see a, a similarity between um, the way that humans function and work in the world, and the way that computers and algorithms function and work in the world, and have those two played into the way that you view? Um, Ethics. I can. I think I can interpret your question on on two levels. The first one is there is always relation. We we always exist. Humans always exist in some uh, relation with with uh, robotic systems or AI systems. So uh, when uh, for me when I talk about say uh, my phone or a robot system, uh, it's a tool that humans have created that will extend my ability to do things, that will extend my cognition. Uh, but to think of that thing, that the, my phone or my robot as something that, uh, you know, can have its own right or that can extend its own existence is to al almost think of, you know, my right as having, it's like talking about giving my rights my my hand right so yes robots robotic systems and ai systems exist in in relation with uh, with humans and, and and they are part of our milieu uh, but but they are not things in and of themselves that can that can be intelligent that can be fully autonomous and um and i think the second part of your question i think if i got it right is 
uh, with the, the complexity of things and the fact that we exist in, in, in a relation in a relation of webs. Um, so uh, I think I'll, I'll talk, I have a recent paper coming out, so I'll, I'll, re ref, I'll, I'll use that as a reference and talk about that uh, and see if I can clarify your point. So yes, coming from um, system science and, and embodied COGSI, as I said earlier, you see human beings and the very idea of cognition fundamentally uh, existing with others, always, you know, in 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 an indeterminable relationship with others. So, uh, and also existing in uh, embedded in historical, in cultural, and societal norms. So any understanding of me requires all that is my background. Uh, so in a sense, if you follow the the systems and the the Koksai, uh thinking, what you find is humans are always active, always moving, always changing, always adjusting to, to the situation, to the context, and and there are infinite ways for ways and different forms uh, for me to be in my next step. There is. I am indeterminable because how I react or how I might behave next is really because it's infinite ways. You really cannot say this is you and then you will act in this way in, 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 in the next event or, in, you know, in the next future. And uh, so that puts the very idea of human beings as really uh, something you cannot predict something that is contextual that something that's continually changing uh, but on the other on the other hand you have uh, machine learning systems especially those that are tr that try to predict social outcomes whether it's in prison uh, whether it's in social welfare uh, or whether it's in social interactions you have you know every day almost you have this new system that is trying to predict uh, so outcome or a social outcome of some sort and it's and then you what you find then is we are trying to employ machine learning systems to predict the inherently unpredictable and in the process even the very idea even the very concept the very attempt to predict something uh, kind of carries the outcome forward so by predicting something you make it happen in a sense and so when we are employing these machine learning systems we are creating a certain type of future that resembles the past and we really are narrowing possibilities and narrowing opportunities especially for those that are disproportionately uh, impacted so i guess my embodied cogsai and systems background uh, comes comes handy in kind of interrogating how the very idea of exist, you know, cognition and intelligence and learning is not something you define once and for all and pin down and then predict because it, that's impossible because we are complex adaptive systems and that's the very definition of uh, complex adaptive systems. And then you, then we, when, when uh, you are deploying these machines, what you find is you get into all sorts of, um, uh, ethical problems where uh, you have uh, discriminations, where you have disproportional harms, but also at a 
general level, you find the general discourse of trying to think of machines as uh, a solution, as a quick fix, or as a way to form formalize, or as a way uh, to kind of um, narrow down and and simplify what has usually been, you know, imp difficult to to define or difficult to to understand. So we get into the habit of or in, into the, 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 this discourse of you uh, thinking of machines as as a quick fix or as a way to 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 almost uh, liken them to give them the ability of a god because we are attempting the impossible just because we have a mathematical ma mathematically based machine learning systems it does seem that a lot of people tend to really trust machine learning systems and machine learning decisions as if they are these divine predictions that are coming from this seemingly objective source in the world. And something that you mentioned that was really, I think, spot on is uh, that machine learning systems are creating a future that resembles the past. And this really touches a lot on the note that the data that's fed into these systems is a reflection of the past. I know you've done a little bit of work on data and objectivity, and I'd love for you to uh, shed a little bit of light on that idea and really whether you think data is objective or could be objective or not. Uh, I think many people have have been uh, writing and speaking about this. Uh, even the very idea of objective subjective is reminiscent of uh you know western philosophy and western science uh it, it comes from the thinking that uh you can put your intuitions your background uh you know your uh feelings and emotions aside and you can look at the world from a totally detached uh, perspective but that's impossible because we are humans. We are not gods. We can't do that. Uh, so whether it's uh, whether it's science, scientific investigations, whether it's data, um, the very idea of you know objective uh, data or objective science really just reflects the status quo. That because when we think we are viewing something from a view from nowhere in in quotation mark. Uh, we really are adopting the status quo as the normal, as the standard, and we are measuring things from there. So the, the very uh, distinction of objective and subjective is uh, really problematic. And a lot of people from STS, uh, I think, uh, de since decades back have been uh, speaking about this. But data... Uh, I'm involved in uh, teaching with, in uh, here in Dublin uh, in the data science module, and there is even you know after so much work, you constantly find your students and people in data science in general thinking, you know, data just exists out there, and yeah, and you you go and uh, collect them, and you do your analysis, and then tada, you find your uh, your results, but that's far from from the truth you know you you even the very beginning of asking a certain question instead of other questions you are bringing your subjective interest and you when you select a certain data set you are excluding others by definition and data sets are never clean and uh, you know never uh, complete you have to to do so much massaging so much cleaning of your data in order for your data to make sense, uh, 
and you exclude some, uh, you have, you know, missing values. So you somehow compensate for that. And all that involves the data science, the person itself doing uh, all the cleaning and the analysis, and then how you want to interpret your results is also really reflects what you, your interests are, what you want to achieve. So, uh, yeah, the, the very idea of objective data really is, uh, I think that is so yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely. And um, I'm, I'm really taking to heart what you're saying about how sometimes even without thinking, we're grounding ourselves in these you know, classic assumptions of like Western philosophy or, or Western understanding. Um, and I was reading your blog post recently about the algorithmic colonization of Africa. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk more about, I guess, the politics of place in all of this. So that my right, my uh, blog on the algorithmic colonization of Africa came from, and, and, and it's, uh, I, I have written it into a paper, so it should also come out very soon. Uh, it came from a, this huge frustration again uh, of um, people totally grossly, uh, you know, overhyping the the power of AI and totally misunderstanding uh, to what extent it's a solution. Um, I was I last year I think in June I was invited to one of the biggest conferences in in Africa. Uh, it's called Sci-Fi Africa. I, at first, I was startled. I just couldn't believe I was invited there because it was uh, uh, a lot of a lot of people from uh, policy, uh, government government people, people from the royal family, regulators, uh, a lot of UN ambassadors, uh, and uh, representatives of various big AI companies, tech companies, and a lot of AI researchers also were there. And I was super excited to be part of it. Uh, but as um, the day went on uh, and as the conference progressed, uh, it's just the same thing again and again and again. People would uh, mention and, and bring up uh, these state-of-the-art uh, algorithm or state-of-the-art tool that has been used, you know, I don't know, in in. Germany or in England or somewhere in the US and they are bringing it to uh, health services to some sub-Saharan countries or uh, they are importing, you know, X and Y and Z to help uh, various women in very uh, small, various small villages in various parts of Africa. And... Uh, so I was I, I tried to be critical in a constructive way, but as the day went by, I was really frustrated because there was no ear for critical thinking. People were just too excited to be up to to um, leapfrog was the term that was overly used. Leapfrog leapfrog the continent into developments. I have also come to be super super allergic to that word now. And uh, for me, uh, I'm, I'm not totally objecting the importing of uh, various take into Africa, but I, what I, my worry was is that, uh, first of all, you know, any take reflects the value and the interest in the problems of a certain society. So a take developed, say, for, for example, in England, uh, really is developed for a certain purpose, 
with certain interests, with certain philosophical thinking background, with certain certain cultural, uh, you know, uh, norms. It it's simply because there is, you know, the philosophy, the interests, the questions, the problems, the solutions totally vary. I know this from, uh, you know, coming from Ethiopia to living in Ireland. I'm still trying to adjust to the culture shock. Uh, people think differently. People uh, find different solutions. A problem that might be seen as critical uh, here in, say, in England, for example, may not be a problem at all in uh, some sub-Saharan country. So one of the issues for me was uh, context matters. And the second one is when you are importing various take uh, products, you really are importing you know whether it's some whether that take is going to be applied in in banking or uh, or in finance you really are bringing your ideal your western ideal your thinking uh, to be normalized to be accepted as the standard so that really resembled um colonial uh, colonial power and but on on a more cynical level is uh if we are being frank, uh, people that are exporting and importing take really have one interest. That is where the accumulation of wealth. They want profit. They really don't care about. It's really not about the unbanked women of Africa. You know, can you imagine? You know, a, a group of um, CEOs sitting at a round table in the US worrying about African uh, unbanked African women. I can't. Uh, so my that was my uh, that uh, article came out of frustration for a lack of critical voice in when talking about uh, technology in in Africa. So uh, I was attempting to to kind of liken how the importing and exporting of Western tech uh, really is uh, you know a, a reincarnation of colonialism, but now it's in a digital form, and because everybody's hyped up. Uh, People are not questioning it as much. So, so what do we do about that? <laughs> is there something that we can, uh, is there something that we could do? Like, how do we, how do we change our thinking? Do we have to just like get rid of the whole system of colonization that's been embedded over the last, you know, forever? Um, or what, yeah, why do we, how do we address this? Yeah. So, um, you know, some people argue uh, we are not over colonialism uh, and some people really, uh, uh, object the very word post-colonialism because we are not past it. Uh, and can we import take without colonialism? No, because a lot of take is built. It's colonialism is not a bug; it's the feature. Uh, so uh, we can't. Uh, but uh, for me, at least, I see uh, a lot of African entrepreneurs. Um, a lot of local experts working from the ground up. Uh, so uh, for me, the, if people really want to, to help, if people want to do good, uh, if they want to be involved, uh, for me, the most straightforward to, thing to do is to support local experts, to support that is technology that is homegrown, that it, that comes from the concerns of you know local problems, and, and that's one one uh, one way uh, forward. And um, but uh, I know I said there was there's very there was very little critical voice at the conference, but 
there still exists a lot of kind of critical voices throughout the continent. So uh, you see them organizing in various ways. So seeing that organization also kind of gives me hope. And I see that is also uh, a, a good future, a way forward. Uh, if, if anything fails, at least in bringing about awareness of you know, the underlying implication and intention of Western technology. And uh, as we move towards the latter part of this interview, something that uh, we do, Dylan and I do as part of this project, the Radical AI podcast, is we are working to define the word radical as it exists in the field of AI. And we are working towards a definition, um, but we're definitely very curious what you think that definition might be. So what the word radical means to you and then of course how you situate yourself your story and your research in that definition um, as I mentioned uh, earlier my background is in uh, embodied cognitive systems thinking and from that perspective you cannot define something once and for all uh, if you define radical AI or what radical means now uh, it's only for it only serves for now because what's radical moves uh, and and changes in time with context. Uh, so, but I'm not saying we shouldn't define a radical. I'm I'm just saying it's it's a moving target. Um, but I don't really have a definition of uh, radical AI myself. But I have a definition from uh, a friend of mine. Uh, you might have heard of her, uh, Ria Klur. Kaluri. Uh, she is uh, she's doing her PhD in Stanford and she is creating a community of radical thinkers. Uh, so her definition of their definition of radical is um, radical work begins with a shared understanding that there is a root problem. Society distributes power evenly. Uh, growing from these roots, radical AI examines how AI rearranges power and critically engages with the radical hope that our communities can dream up different human AI systems that help put power, power back in the hands of uh, the people. Uh, so I think that's a good working definition. Uh, but again, it will, what, what is radical uh, varies. So what is radical? So uh, some people take my work as radical, and if you are, if you come from uh, systems thinking or STS, you will find my work not that radical, but it would be radical for you know the AI crowd. Uh, and if you look at my AI work and I bring it to the systems thinking, you know the the systems crowd will find it radical, but not so much the AI. So it really is what what what's radical really is uh, uh, contextual. Uh, but even given context and conditions, still some people for me stand out as doing radical work. One, as I mentioned, is uh, Ria Kaluri. Uh, she uh, is, uh, she, radical work for her is all about shifting power from the least powerful, from the most powerful to the least powerful. So this can happen, for example, uh, by involving vulnerable people and people that are disproportionately impacted and harmed by AI into the decision-making uh, position by putting them at a, at a key decision-making pos points, positions, then we shift the power, we give them more power to decide. 
the other one is uh, Dan McQuillan. He he's uh, he's a an experimental physicist by by training, but the kind of work he does also, as far as I'm concerned, qualifies as radical. Uh, in especially his recent work on non-fascist AI, he likens the very idea of the AI project as something that aligns with uh, radical right-wing thinking. Uh, he explains how AI has allowed for uh, thoughtlessness. Uh, we stop being critical. We just adopt the next big thing. And he goes through all the characteristics of AI that very well aligns it with, you know, a right-wing thinking. And, and for him, uh, in order to get at, you know, uh, uh, an ethical or uh, social good AI, we really have to dismantle, we have to come to terms with the fact that AI as it is, is now something that aligns values with, you know, radical left-wing thinking. And um, for him, we work from there. And by, uh, you know, organizing, by resisting and uh, by various, by devising various uh, methods and developing tools. And I guess I should mention another one is uh, OSKIS. Uh, you might have heard of them. They, they have written one, one piece especially comes to my mind, uh, which is Counting the Countless, uh, which again questions the very fundamental idea of what data science is. Uh, for them, they were asked, I think they explained at the start of the, the piece, which is in Real Life magazine, it's called Counting the Countless. They were asked to give a talk on how uh, data science can be used uh, for good to put to, to help uh, uh, queer people and trans people. And they explain through the piece and what they arrive, what they find is Data science, the very existence of data science actually is a fundamental problem, is something that harms trans people, queer people, because queerness and being trans is contextual. And by, you know, um, kind of pinning down a person in data points, you really force them into some sort of category. So data science in a way brings more harm than good. So that kind of work uh, all qualifies, uh, all I, all that type of work, I think, uh, is radical uh, and something inspirational and um, very, uh, it, it gives me vision uh, and hope and, uh, yeah. And of course, for listeners, we will include uh, the names and links to those thinkers and some of those publications uh, in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Abeba, as we look towards ending uh, this interview, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to give us your own vision uh, or or hope, because there's a lot of folks that listen to this podcast who are just getting into this work and getting into these conversations. And if there's either one piece of advice or uh, one particular vision you have of uh, all of us coming together in this work, that would be wonderful. I have just realized I have been super negative. So <laughs> it's it's fair that I... Uh, I uh, kind of outline some sort of uh, hope and vision. Uh, yes, um, I, as I said earlier, I have a paper coming out uh, called um, In Defense of Indeterminability. Uh, and it's all about how machine learning systems are uh, 
forcing and coercing determinability to uh, and narrowing possibilities and creating a future that that resembles the past. And towards the end of that paper, I I outline a few uh, kind of ways forward and uh, um, you know aspects that give hope. And uh, I guess one of them for me is we can talk about policy. We can talk about you know devising data sets. Uh, we can talk about uh, various tools to to combat uh, you know surveillance systems. Uh, that's all good. Uh, but one central issue for me is uh, one central thing and um, vision for me is a system where um, uh, you know radical work or work that empowers the least powerful is incentivized. Where you know we, where we create a discourse or where it becomes the norm that doing AI work that might give you very little profit or no profit at all because at the moment all AI is based on profit and efficiency. So an AI that puts all that objective of you know gaining as much profit and great efficiency aside and something that strives to 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 empower the the, the, the least privileged and the most vulnerable. Uh, and that's, it's not that we are lacking that. There are various people working on that, but we don't have a system that incentivizes, that encourages that. So my hope and my vision is uh, for creating awareness and creating a system that makes that sort of work cool and uh, that rewards that. I don't know if it's um, possible, but that's my hope. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for saying all that. And Aveva, now that we've reached the end of our interview, for all of our listeners, if they would like to engage a little bit more with your work or with your online presence, is there a best place for them to go for that? Uh, uh, yes, I can uh, put in my email address and I'm also on uh, very active on Twitter. Uh, yes, I am happy to interact and to discuss on Twitter as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much again for coming on for this conversation, Aveva. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been great. We again want to thank Abeba for coming on the show today and coming out of this interview, I am feeling pretty challenged overall, especially on this concept of ethics in general. I think one of the most important set of questions that we started asking in the middle of the interview is uh, whether ethics means anything anymore or whether it's just a brand that we're putting out there. Uh, I think Abeba used the term you know, vacuous uh, when she talked about removing hashtag ethics from her Twitter bio. And for me, as someone who considers himself an ethicist, and for us as doing this podcast about AI ethics, that question of you know what are ethics is just is so important. Um, and I never want it to get to a point where we completely lose track of what is core in questions of ethics. But in order to do that, we all need to, to know what we mean when we're using the term ethics in the first place. And if it just becomes a corporate slogan uh, or something about compliance, right, just in the legal field, then we have really lost the heart of the project. So I'm feeling challenged to figure out, you know, how do we maintain uh, standards and meaning and content in 
the bucket of ethics while we're having these conversations. You know, Dylan, I completely agree with you. I actually felt challenged quite a bit by this interview as well. First, in just questioning what the word ethics actually means, and then questioning what it means to be an ethicist and asking myself if I am an ethicist. I know you said you label yourself as an ethicist, but I was remembering the first time that you and I did our very first welcome episode together, and you asked me if I considered myself to be an ethical person. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> and uh, I didn't really know how to answer that question. And... <laughs> I, I think that as an ethicist, that is a really important question to be asking yourself, probably constantly. And Abeva kind of brought that up in this interview at one point. She was talking about the harm of universalism. And if we create ethical standards for things or for technology, and we just assume that one way can be the best way for everyone, that's super harmful. And uh, I just, I find myself questioning First of all, if standardization is even possible in ethics, and if it is, what would that standardization look like? And am I even someone who is able to make a call like that, who's just working on AI and ethics, who considers myself maybe an ethicist, if I don't even really know what it means to be an ethicist, and if I don't even know if I consider myself to be an ethical person or not? I, I don't know. I just I have a lot of thoughts coming up <laughs> around this topic, and it's definitely making me question quite a bit about the field of ethics as a whole. A lot of really great existential questions, um, <laughs> or, or eth ethics-central questions. Eh? That was pretty good. Uh, that was all. That wasn't good. That was no. great. Um, so yeah, and then some other things based on what you're talking about that, that come to mind is, is when Abeba was talking about, you know, robot rights, and um, I, I never really considered myself a robot rights activist, but as someone who studies like different types of intelligences and questions about like, you know, uh, general AI in the future and topics like that, um, I, I don't think I've ever really connected the topics of robot rights with uh, capitalism and with the issues of capitalism and uh, how Abeba connected it with the rights of corporations and uh, really just being if we think about robots as products, it being extensions of increased protection um, and legal support, essentially, for uh, the corporations themselves. Um, and that's something that I have you know, various um, thoughts about that I need to, I think, think more about <laughs> before, before I share. But uh, that, in terms of like, can this question of robot rights really just be, uh, I think, as Abeba said, a reincarnation of colonialism in a digital form? Um, is just such a, a pivotal question um, that I think really needs to be asked. And that's why it's so important that Abeba's interdisciplinary background is represented um, in these spaces and why we have these conversations in the first place about social sciences and computer science coming together to have these conversations. Because you need the historical background of colonization in order to really understand how even the questions of, of robot rights might be playing directly into historical uh, systems of oppression. Yeah, there's clearly a lot of topics that we still need a little bit of time to digest and to debrief together. But of course, we'll get much more deeper into this conversation in our mini-sode in a few weeks. And until then... For more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. 
Join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And as always, stay, stay radical. radical. <laughs> it's, it's good. I, I always like the delay on Zoom. With the stay radical. I don't think it was together for <laughs> me. Uh, <laughs> Do you consider yourself an ethicist, Dylan? Are you ethical? <laughs> two, two very different questions. <laughs> I, I consider, I don't know. I we should talk more about the ethics soup. <laughs> you wouldn't put ethics in your week? ethics soup. I would not put ethics in. No, just just more back to the carrots. Um. <laughs>